Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. All right, welcome to Behind the Knife. This is the first episode done by uh, the new HPB group, that's us, so uh, my name is Tim Vreeland. I'm a surgical oncologist and HPB surgeon at Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, and I'm joined here by Dan Nelson, who is another Army surgical oncologist in El Paso, Texas. And then uh, two of our residents from Brook Army Medical Center, Connor Chick, who is finishing his R3 year, and then Lexi Adams, who is finishing her research year and will be starting her R3 year uh, in the summer here. So, uh, like I said, we're the new HPB team, so we're going to uh, be doing some episodes around the world of hepatobiliary surgery. Uh, tonight, we're going to talk about a case, um, specifically pancreas cancer, and we're going to try to do that in an educational manner for everybody and try to teach you everything you uh, need to know about pancreas cancer in 30 minutes. We'll see how that goes. So, uh, Connor, you just got a call for a consult from the medicine team. Uh, they admitted a 55-year-old uh, woman the day before who had presented with abdominal pain, 10-pound weight loss. Um, she's had some early satiety over the last month or so, just some kind of vague symptoms. And then her husband noticed that she was turning a bit yellow. So a CT scan was ordered, which shows some uh, intrahepatic and extrahepatic biliary dilation, some dilation of the pancreatic duct. Uh, a hypodense mass in the um, head and unsented process of the pancreas with uh, some minimal narrowing of the SMB portal vein confluence. So what other things do you want to know about this patient? So I'd want an idea of to what degree her biliary system is obstructed. So I'd, I'd want to get uh, some LFTs. Um, another tumor marker that we can look at for pancreas cancer would be CA199. And certainly I'd want to know her other medical and surgical history. Um, and specifically, you know, when I go see her trying to get an idea of what her functional status is. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. So we'll just make it easy. She has no real medical history that's significant. She never had surgery before. Um, and then what are the risk factors for pancreas cancer specifically that you're going to ask about? So the number one thing I'm going to ask you about is smoking. Okay. Um, that's, long been associated with uh, an increased risk of pancreas cancer, about three and a half fold. And then I would also want to uh, take note of her BMI um, and also would, you know, we said that she doesn't have any medical history, but what could be pertinent is any sort of recent onset of diabetes. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. So Lexi, he said smoking is the number one risk factor for pancreas cancer. What's the second most common in the United States? Uh, so obesity is the second leading cause. Yeah. So if you look, if you kind of look this up, it's going to say obesity and, you know, metabolic syndrome are two and three. In my mind, they're kind of the same thing, right? So, so those are really the risk factors. It used to be always smoking, but the obesity kind of epidemic in the United States is moving obesity up. You always think of a pancreas cancer patient being rail thin, but we don't see that uh, all the time anymore. And then, you know, I basically think of three types of pancreas cancer. So there's smoking-driven pancreas cancer, there's obesity-driven pancreas cancer, and then what's the third one? And then familial-type pancreatic cancer. Right, right. So 
you know, not super common, but genetically driven pancreas cancer uh, is actually, you know, fairly common. It's kind of questionable whether it's more or less common than obesity, than obesity driven. But what that translates into clinically is, Connor, you see this woman, you're going to be checking all these labs. What other labs should be checked in every patient with pancreas cancer as of the newest guidelines in the last two years? So every patient with a known diagnosis of pancreas cancer needs to have um, germline genetic testing. Yeah, perfect. So what are you looking for? So looking for some of the more uh, prevalent um, genetic mutations. So BRCA1 and 2 um, is, is one of the more common ones for pancreas cancer. Yeah, that's, that's the one that you should probably know, right? So bracket one and two. The things that, that are clinically relevant are what we call DNA damage repair genes or DDR genes. So BRCA is the one that everybody knows. And then PALB2 is probably the other one that you should have heard of at some point. So those are the things that you're looking for up front that you're going to test every pancreas cancer patient for. Um, and then what does that mean clinically? What is Why does it matter? Uh, is that better, worse, if you're going to have pancreas cancer, would you rather have the genetically driven one or not? I would. So they, they tend to, untreated tend to be a little bit more aggressive, but they also have a typically a more robust response to, um, to especially systemic therapies. And right. So, yeah. So, you know, we can get into the weeds a little bit here, but the bottom line is that uh, these BRCA driven or DDR, DDR gene driven pancreas cancers respond really well to platinum agents. Tim, just to drive this point home. Uh, so 10% of all pancreatic cancers are familial and we, we want to know about their family history, right? So if they have a first degree relative with pancreatic cancer, their, their risk of developing pancreatic cancer is four and a half fold. And that is exponential. So it's sevenfold with two relatives. It's up to 30-fold with three relatives. And uh, you mentioned the, the BRCA, the PALB2, but Lynch is also a, a predominant one. So those, those are DNA mismatch repair genes as well. And then uh, don't forget your Putz-Jaeger with the STK11. Okay. So um, we meet this lady. We send the BRCA off, right? We send off some basic labs. So you mentioned one thing that you're going to send some LFTs. So she's jaundiced, right? So her Billy's, let's say her Billy's seven or eight. So what's the problem with the inf information that I've presented thus far and checking a CA-19-9? So she's has biliary obstruction, which can lead to a false elevation of um, CA-19-9. Yeah, exactly. So you shouldn't trust a 19-9 if the bilirubin is over 2.5. It's kind of a good rule. So you got to wait until that bilirubin comes down and then recheck it. And then that will be more reliable. What are the other problems with CA-19-9? It's also a very nonspecific lab value. So it can also be related to hepatobiliary cancer, ovarian cancer, colorectal cancers. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's mainly thought of as hepatobiliary, but this could be cholangiocarcinoma. But, you know, given the scenario we presented and we know we're talking about pancreas cancer, it's okay for this one. But uh, it is a good marker when it's there. Uh, but what, what about if it's not there? What about if her CA-99 comes back at two? So you have to also have the um, Lewis blood group antigen in order to display a positive CA-99 um, in general. So there will be a portion of patients that don't have that antigen and won't have an elevated CA-99. 
Yeah, perfect. So reported, you know, somewhere around 10, in my experience, seems like more like 20. There's a good portion of the, of the population that just won't produce it. So they'll have metastatic cancer and a 199 of five, and it just isn't meaningful. So, but that's information that you want to know before they get treated. You want to know that up front because you're going to use that 199. You're going to track it throughout their therapy. And if they're a non-producer, you want to know that right away. So, you know, you check it and then you'll wait till our billy goes down and you'll check it again. So, uh, you've gotten all your laboratory work up, you have a CT scan. Um, and then we got to think about, should we do any more imaging, right? So what other imaging would you need? Dan, maybe you want to talk about this? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the standard imaging, uh, you know, recommended by NCCN guidelines is a CT pancreas protocol, uh, which is a triple phase, uh, CT arterial and venous phases with subcentimeter slices. And that's, that's typically the standard imaging. There may be some institutional preference for MRI, um, which has the advantages of showing the potential for subcentimeter uh, liver lesions, as well as giving you MR, MRCP information. Something that's, uh, that's uh, improving is CT PET, um, but uh, is currently not recommended for routine workups. So typically surgeons will rely on a CT pancreatic protocol uh, for, for initial staging. I do want to bring up though, that when we're talking about the anatomic um, uh, resectability, it's important to note that even on a, you know, appropriately uh, phased CT um, pancreatic protocol, there'll still be 20% of patients who, despite having resectable anatomy, will end up having positive margins on the resection. Um, and that's just, that's just a uh, downside of that, that imaging. It doesn't tell us, you know, when this tumor is actually infiltrative and we can't pick that up on the scan. So it's important to remember one fifth of patients, despite having resectable anatomy, uh, will have positive margins. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Dana. So let's get into kind of the real question that we're getting down to here, which is, what is the first treatment going to be for this patient? And in my mind, the whole conversation around pancreas cancer really revolves around this question of, do they go to surgery first or they, do they get chemotherapy first? We do assign a clinical stage to patients with pancreas cancer, but I don't really think it's very meaningful. So that's where I think that actually defining patients as resectable, borderline resectable, locally advanced is actually more meaningful than their clinical stage, that the AJCC clinical stage. So really so much of the question comes down to, to where you're going to classify them um, to me. So we're going to go into a little bit of controversial stuff here. I think there's a useful framework um, that was introduced by the group from MD Anderson where they, you know, the, the, the vessel interface, they call that borderline A and then there's borderline B, and there's borderline C. And this is kind of what the, the newest ASCO guidelines have picked up on. So let's, let's hold off on borderline A for the moment, because that's the one that everybody thinks about. Let's talk about borderline B and borderline C first. So Lexi, tell me what borderline B means to you. So borderline B is based on tumor biology. Uh, so these are things like um, having a high CA199 um, may predict that uh, there's extra pancreatic disease that you may not be able to see on your CT scans. And then there's some lymphadenopathy um, or some questionable lesions in the liver. Um, there might be some uh, occult metastases starting to occur as well. Yeah, good. So yeah, that, that CA-199 number is controversial. I think greater than 
500 is a number most people agree on. Um, you know, and then the more the reality is that everybody's bias comes into this, right? So the more you are biased towards neoadjuvant therapy, the, the lower that number is going to be. So the number used to be a thousand and then people moved it down to 500 and now people are talking in the 200 number, but it all depends on who you talk to. Uh, in my hands, I think more, I like a number in the two or three hundreds. That's kind of, uh, if, if the CA 99 is below that, I'm not super worried about metastatic disease, but once it creeps over 500, I'm very worried about micrometastatic disease at least. The way that the ASCO guidelines read, one of their criteria for who should get primary tumor resection is just a CA199 level in the absence of jaundice. So they do note that part about the bilirubin, uh, suggestive of potentially curable disease. So that's not very specific, but an elevated 199 above some threshold uh, is what we consider borderline B disease. And then, like you said, if there's imaging evidence of positive nodes, then I would call that borderline B as well. In any one of those things that Lexi mentioned, right? Radiographic findings suggestive of a possible metastasis, suspicious of, of uh, gross lymph node involvement, elevation of CA199. If any one of those are positive, it's nearly a 50% likelihood that the patient will develop early metastatic recurrence if they don't already, if it's not already pl- present. Um, but it, and this goes to, you know, kind of the controversy that we're leading towards, but as many as 15% of patients will have none of those factors and yet still develop an early recurrent. So, um, all right, Connor, talk to me about borderline C. So borderline C stands for condition or comorbidities. And that refers to specifically, uh, comorbid conditions that a patient might have that, um, would potentially prevent them from having a smooth post-operative recovery and proceeding to adjuvant therapy. Um, since we know that getting systemic therapy is so important in terms of long-term uh, disease-free and overall survival. So, um, and these are specifically comorbid conditions that would be reversible. So, um, you know, things like uh, cardiac or pulmonary conditions that need to be treated um, that can be treated preoperatively. Okay. And then what about condition? What do you mean by that? So that also just refers to their overall uh, performance status. So, um, you know, there's a lot of things that go into that, but, you know, patients that are living independently, able to complete their activities of daily living, um, because obviously a patient who uh, is is already medically ill for many other reasons um, is likely not going to tolerate uh, chemotherapy or surgery potentially, Yeah, um, and, but certainly and, not both. And I mean, how do a lot of patients that present with pancreas cancer look when you first meet them? Right. So cachexia is pretty common. Um, a lot of times people have weight loss related to abdominal pain or even just uh, the the pancreas cancer itself. And so those those patients could benefit from having some additional time to build up their nutrition prior to big operation. There's, there was a really nice retrospective study done uh, by Dr. Zong probably seven years ago. Um, and we'll put that, we'll link to that in the show notes, but it basically showed that if you have a complication post-op and you had surgery first, your, your disease-free survival, or I'm sorry, your overall survival curve looks roughly the same as the patients who did not get surgery or did not get chemo. Uh, whereas if you had neoadjuvant therapy and then you had a complication, your overall survival was not really changed by the presence of that complication. Um, so, okay. So we've talked about borderline C, uh, borderline B. Now let's go back to borderline A, which is the one that most people think of when they talk about borderline. So 
Lexi, borderline anatomy, what does that mean to you? So the exact definitions vary based on the group listing the criteria, but basically it's the interaction of the tumor with the SMA, the SMV, or the portal vein. And then if it's further down the body of the pancreas, you're also thinking about the celiac axis and the common hepatic artery. Okay, good. So can you give a simple definition of borderline A? So according to ASCO, it's any vascular interface with any of the major mesenteric vasculature and the, the tumor itself. Right. When I was a resident, we had to memorize all these different criteria, but I, I think it's much simpler now based on the current ASCO guidelines. So I'm just going to read from the ASCO guidelines just to kind of drive these points home. Which patients with potentially curative pancreas cancer should be offered a curative strategy, a potentially curative strategy with primary tumor resection, meaning surgery up front. So their criteria are no clinical evidence of metastatic disease, a performance status and comorbidity profile appropriate for a major abdominal operation, no radiographic interface between the primary tumor and mesenteric vasculature on cross-sectional imaging, and a 19-9 level in the absence of jaundice suggestive of potentially curable disease. So essentially they have gone right through the borderline A, B, and C criteria. That's in the ASCO guidelines. And so I think that's a great place for residents to look when they're trying to wrap their head around who should get surgery first. Yeah. And if they want to like nail down like what the goal of those of those criteria are, like what is the goal of combining A, B, and C? It's really you're trying to ensure that you're going to be selecting appropriate patients for a treatment sequencing. So you're trying to ensure that the patient's going to be able to undergo a major, you know, morbid operation and achieve negative margins, which is a critical factor for survival. You're trying to ensure that they're not going to have an early recurrence, right? Um, and you're trying to ensure that they have the best chance of receiving adjuvant therapy, you know, full, full treatment. Right. Yeah. I mean, to take a step back, what we know is that patients who get surgery and don't get adjuvant therapy do very poorly. Uh, you know, their overall survival is dramatically shortened. Okay. So we've talked all about uh, who should not get surgery first and who should get neoadjuvant. So if you're going to give neoadjuvant, you got to have a tissue diagnosis. So we haven't really finished our workup, right? You're going to call your GI buddies and what are you going to ask them to do? So I'm going to ask GI to perform uh, an endoscopic ultrasound with uh, an FNA of the suspicious tumor or lymph nodes that may or may be involved. Okay, perfect. So they're going to get you a biopsy. Now you know it's pancreas cancer. Lexi, you're going to ask them to do anything else while they are while they got the scope down. If we're, we know this is a borderline tumor and we're planning neoadjuvant chemotherapy, I'd ask them to place a biliary stent as well. Yeah, so that's kind of what I wanted to just briefly talk about. So um, are you going to stent everybody with pancreatic cancer and jaundice? If they have a resectable tumor and I'm planning to resect within the next couple of days, I would not place a stent first. Okay. Uh, why not? Uh, so they have shown in a randomized trial um, placing a biliary stent and waiting to do surgery versus just doing the surgery up front on obstructive patients. And while the perioperative morbidity is no different between those two groups, the overall complication rate associated with both 
the procedure and the surgery um, is much higher in the group getting the biliary stent in the first place. They have a lot more readmission, um, a lot more complications such as cholangitis um, and increased wound infections. Um, so, so there's this concern that by opening up the ampulla, you're going to basically colonize the biliary tree. And so then when you go cut across that biliary tree, you have a higher risk of infection. Now, um, is there a bilirubin cutoff where you would want to drain their bile duct before moving to the operating room? Yes. If it was greater than 10, I would want to do yeah, preoperative so drainage. This is kind of like the 99 thing, right? Like everybody's got their number. Um, I would say 15 is probably a clear cut number. And then a lot of people say 12. So 10 is probably on the lower side. 12 is reasonable. 15, certainly. And what's the, Connor, what's the risk? If you take a patient with a bilirubin of 15 to the OR, what's the problem? So it's not necessarily the bilirubin that is the problem, but if their if bilirubin is that high, um, it, they likely are going to have some congestive hepatopathy and maybe coagulopathic in the operating room. Yeah, exactly. So coagulopathy is a concern. So, you know, in my hands, a lot of patients are getting neoadjuvant. And so I really believe that the stents are just something you do. It's not that big of a deal. Um, so I agree. You would ask them for an EUS, a biopsy. They would do an ERCP. You'd ask them for a stent. But, you know, I just want to I just want to drive this point home. Yeah. So if a patient's presenting with an obstructive jaundice, you have to, your inclination has to be that this is more advanced than what maybe imaging is suggesting. And there's been studies that have shown that any elevation in CA199, regardless of bilirubin level, is still a negative prognostic factor, right? It's still a marker of patients doing poorly with an upfront surgical approach. So, you know, um, I would be, you know, my inclination would be that if a person is presenting with advanced disease enough to be, to have an obstructive jaundice, that I'm sending and thinking of neoadjuvant therapy for that patient, because those, those findings in and of itself are suggesting that it's more advanced than what imaging alone is showing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's dead on Dan. And I think there's two things you have to keep in mind or two things you take into account when you're talking about this, where do you think the tumor is and where is the bile duct, right? So if it's a periampulary tumor and they're jaundiced, okay, fine. No big deal. If it's an uncinate tumor and they're jaundiced, that's a big tumor because the tumor is touching the bile duct, whether you can see it on imaging or not. Dan, we're going to talk a little bit about neoadjuvant chemotherapy for pancreas cancer, but let's let's first just set the stage for why we know chemotherapy is super important for pancreas cancer. So, you know, even 15 years ago, there were a lot of people arguing that you just need surgery for pancreas cancer. It's the only chance that cure chemo doesn't work. So talk a little bit about kind of the history of this. Sure, Tim. I, I do think there's a few important trials that we could highlight, um, starting with the, the CONCO-1 trial and SPAC-1 trial. I mean, these really kind of, you know, established that curative intent resection alone was no longer standard of care. Uh, the CONCO-1 trial compared gemcitabine uh, alone versus no adjuvant therapy and demonstrated improvements in disease-free survival, whereas the SPAC-1 trial uh, looked at bolus 5-FU and mucoborin versus no adjuvant therapy and demonstrated an overall survival benefit of uh, nearly six months. Um, subsequent trials uh, compared these two regimens, and then subsequently they were combined in the SPAC-4 trial, which uh, consisted of gemcitabine uh, plus capecitabine 
uh, versus gemcitabine alone. And uh, in this case, there was an overall survival improvement with multi-agent chemo, uh, which definitely set the standard for uh, six months of, of multi-agent adjuvant chemo <coughs> following curative intent resection. Subsequent trials have looked at uh, alternative regimens that were shown to be effective in the metastatic setting, including gemabraxane, um, that's gemcitabine, uh, and abraxane, or nab um, as well as a uh, uh, modified fulfirinox regimen in the Protege24 trial, which, uh, you know, this was a uh, landmark uh, recently, which demonstrated uh, median overall survival improvements uh, with, uh, 54 months versus 34 months. With uh, in the gemcitabine alone group, um, so the evolution of these studies established, you know, uh, adjuvant therapy is needed uh, uh, over uh, surgery alone, and uh, subsequent trials demonstrated the multi-agent chemo is really the standard regimens, and we've started to develop uh, more effective regimens in modified fluorinox and gemabraxane. But the thing that's always highlighted in these trials is that uh, patients frequently cannot tolerate uh, completing at all adjuvant therapy. In the SPAC-4 trial, I think 54% of patients were not able to uh, start or complete therapy. And so this really kind of highlights um, the advantages of giving this therapy up front prior to resection. And now we're starting to get phase two uh, trial results um, demonstrating the benefits of these multi-agent regimens uh, up front. Um, and uh, there's currently uh, phase three trials that are accruing. Um, but this is definitely the trend that we are going. Yeah. So again, that history, Conco 01 kind of established chemo. SPAC4 was uh, gem cytobine versus gem plus cape cytobine. Uh, and that showed that the combination was better. So since then, it's been basically all combination chemo. And then the newest agents on the block, Lexi, talk about the two chemos that we kind of give now for pancreas cancer, the two regimens that we commonly give. So normally, uh, fulfirinox or modified fulfirinox, um, as well as gemcitabine plus snab paclitaxel. Okay. So what's fulfirinox with three drugs? So full is folinic acid, otherwise known as leucovorin. Um, uh, the next F is 5-fluorouracil, irinotecan, and oxaliplatin. Yeah, so it's basically 5-FU, irinotecan, and oxaliplatin. So, um, that, so that, that regimen was studied against what was then the standard of care, which was single-agent gemcitabine. So uh, these regimens that we're going to talk about have all kind of been compared to gemcitabine alone. So fulfirinox was compared in the adjuvant setting, so post-op setting. Uh, and what did that trial show? Any ideas? So the patients getting fulfirinox did remarkably better uh, with their median survival stretching out into the 40-something months. 54 months. 54 so, months. so adjuvant fulfirinox the, led to an overall survival of 54 months, which is sort of unheard of in pancreas cancer. Now, the, the critique of that study is that these are very highly selected patients. And the way you know that is the gemcitabine arm also did much better than any previous study of gemcitabine. So these are very highly selected patients. But the point is, if you give somebody fulfirinox, which is the best chemo that we have, if you select patients really well for surgery and combine that with fulfirinox, you can get meaningful survival. 
And so that's really kind of where the state of the art is right now, is we're trying to apply the best chemo to the best patients and hope for a survival in the four or five year range. Um, and so that, I think that really kind of sums up where we're at. So, um, trying to get this combination of surgery and chemo together, that's where I think neoadjuvant becomes really important because if you can get them the chemo up front, you know, they're going to get the chemo. Whereas if you operate up front, there's some question of whether or not they're going to be able to tolerate that chemo. Now there are always exceptions. And I think those ASCO guidelines are kind of uh, right on. So if you can hit those criteria, then operating up front is very reasonable. And I would say still the standard of care, uh, as long as you're not borderline A, B, or C. So you talked about another chemo regimen, gemcitabine, nabpaclitaxel. The other name for that is abraxane. So that has been studied in the metastatic setting and shown to be better than gemcitabine alone. It was studied in the adjuvant setting, meaning the post-op setting, and it did do a little bit better, but they had this goofy primary outcome of uh, centrally, centrally decided disease-free survival, essentially, and the... Um, the, the, on that outcome, the p-value was more than 0.05. So there's certainly a signal that gemcitabine, abraxane works well, but the you can't say that the adjuvant setting had a significant difference. So that's a little bit tricky, but those are the two regimens currently that we're using, fulfirinox, gemcitabine, abraxane. So what I would say for this patient, she's 55 years old, she's healthy, robust, she should tolerate some whatever chemo we throw at her, so I would push my medical oncologist to give her full Fearnox and then uh, hope that she does well with it. So what do you think about um, as a argument against neoadjuvant when the patient comes and says that they don't want to miss the opportunity to getting the tumor out? That's the most common, you know, pushback against the neoadjuvant strategy. And what I would say is if they progress through fulfirinox or gemcitabine abraxane, they're not going to do well post-op anyway, right? So patients who meet those borderline criteria essentially all have micrometastatic disease when they show up, right? So pancreas cancer is a systemic disease. That's the, you know, that's the bottom line. So you have to treat the systemic disease. You can't just operate and, and expect that the patients are going to have any sort of meaningful survival, right? So we know that from going all the way back to Conco 01, that the overall survival is probably about a year, the disease-free survival, probably about six months if all they get is surgery. And so then the argument is you're missing your window because you didn't operate because they progressed through chemotherapy. So if they already have micrometastatic disease and you take their tumor out, and then you give them that same chemotherapy on the back end, that micrometastatic disease is still going to progress, whether their tumor is out or not, right? So patients rarely die of local disease. They die of metastatic disease. So that's what it all boils down to, to me, is, is treating the micrometastatic disease. And I, I, the, to add to that, the other thing is, is that as we've started to get data from phase two uh, you know, trials looking at the neoadjuvant therapy, it, it can, the consensus has been that really only about 10% of patients will indeed progress through the therapy. Yeah. yeah. So if yeah, you look so at like, swag, if you look at swag 1505, they had 103 patients that were, you know, uh, allocated to fulfirinox versus gemabraxane. And they only had nine patients who progressed through therapy. Right. And I would argue those nine patients would not have been helped by surgery. No way. 
we sort of said this earlier, but it's a really morbid operation. You should not be doing it on people that you're not going to help, you know, offer long-term survival. And so I think missing that window is just not, it's just a fallacy. It's all right, Connor. So they're getting started on Fulfirinox by medical oncology. Uh, when do you want to see this patient and how do you want to restage them? So I'm going to see her back in about eight weeks and I'm going to restage her with a uh, repeat CA-99 and then I'm going to repeat the pancreatic CT scan. Yeah, good. So I think, you know, the key is do the same imaging you did before. Compare apples to apples. So yeah, you're going to repeat your imaging. You're going to repeat your 199. Uh, and then how much chemo are you trying to get on the front end? So I believe the, the goal is to get them through um, six two-week cycles, if she, if, presuming she got uh, modified Fulfirinox. Yeah, I don't think there's a right answer is the bottom line. I would say as much as you kind of reasonably can. So the standard answer would be to get six months of total chemotherapy because that's kind of what we always do. It's not like there's great data to point to the fact that you need six months, but the standard answer would be to get six months total and that can be split however you want to split it. There's a really interesting trial enrolling right now looking at uh, patients with resectable disease. So meeting those ASCO guidelines for resectable, upfront resectable disease. And they're giving them either surgery upfront or four months of chemotherapy. So in my mind that, you know, that's kind of where most people are at is try to get four months upfront. So there's no right answer is the bottom line. It's kind of an individualized uh, decision based on what's going on with that patient. But if they're doing great and they can go to four months, that's probably what I would shoot for. And then the other thing I'm watching for is the 19.9. What do I want to see their 19.9 do before I operate? So you'd like to see a decrease of at least half. Yeah. Again, super controversial, right? So uh, different papers have shown that different cutoffs are good. So the bottom line is the more you get it down, the better. But uh, I, I would try to shoot for normalization depending on what you have to do. So a patient with who I'm not going to have to do a vascular resection, I'm probably okay if their tumor marker goes down by at least 50%. I'd like to see it go below 100. You know, these patients with truly borderline anatomy, I want to see normalization of their 19.9 because there's pretty good data that those are the patients that, um, that are going to do well long-term. First of all, talk to me about what you think the best source is um, for a resident who wants to read about the steps of a Whipple operation. So if I was looking to prepare for this operation, I would look in uh, mastery surgery in the, the chapter by Dr. Evans. Yeah, so that's going to be, you know, our biased answer. So it's not the only answer out there. There's lots of ways to, to skin the cat. But I think for residents trying to learn, um, you know, Doug Evans has described this six-step resection uh, that I think is really, really nice and kind of lays out the steps very well. All right, so what are those steps, Connor? So briefly, the, the first step is to mobilize the hepatic flexure to expose the SMV uh, inferior to the, uh, to the pancreas. Yeah, perfect. So the key there is enter the lesser sac, meaning you take the colon down, and then you take, like you said, the right colon, the hepatic flexure down. Uh, and what you're looking for is the middle colic vein. And then you follow the backside of the middle colic vein right down to the SMV. And that typically is going to happen right at where the SMV goes behind the pancreas. So that's going to be the inferior edge of your retropancreatic tunnel. So you can define that very key piece of anatomy first step right away in the operation. 
Um, you know, some people will loop out the SMB depending on kind of how much work you're going to have to do around there. Uh, and so that's my typical practice is to just get around the SMB at that point, unless it's, there's some reason I'm not going to do that. And then, um, there's going to be some branches on typically on the right side of the SMB that you may deal with right then and there. What, 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 uh, Lexi, what vein branch comes into the right side of the SMB kind of right where your retropancreatic tunnel is at? So you're worried about the the gastrocolic trunk. Yeah. So the gastrocolic um, trunk usually comes into the SMB very close to where the pancreas crosses over the SMB. And that is the gastrocolic trunk typically has two veins that are draining into it. What are those? The right colic vein and the gastroepiploic vein. Yeah. Good. One of those you have to take, the other you don't. Which one do you have to take to do a Whipple? You need to take the gastroepiploic vein. Right. So a lot of people will just take the gastroepiploic right there in step one. It's out of the way you know, essentially I was taught to take the right colic vein with, you know, without a sweat, without thinking about it. So if it's in your way, uh, or if you, you know, tumor stuck to it or anything like that, you know, don't worry too much about taking the right colic vein there as well. And now you've cleared kind of the right side of that SMB out. Uh, and if you can, if you want to get around it, you can get around it right then. Okay. So that's step one. I basically follow the middle colic down, identify the SMB at the inferior edge of the retropancreatic tunnel. What's step two? So step two is going to be the extended coker maneuver. So you're going to mobilize. Right. So you're going to incise the lateral uh, retroperitoneal attachments of the second portion of the duodenum and then continue to reflect the duodenum and the pancreas medially um, all the way over to the lateral border of the aorta. What vascular structure do you need to expose to know that you're done with your coker? So to complete the coker maneuver, you want to see the left renal vein. Yeah, good. So you need to see a centimeter or two of the left renal vein to say that you've done an adequate coker in my mind. And the reason that that, the reason you want to get that far over is not because you want to clear off the cava or expose the aortocaval nodes. That's not really the important part, but there's an arterial structure anterior to the left renal vein that you're going to need to deal with during this operation. And that's what you're really exposing. What is that? So you're trying to expose the SMA. Yeah, you got to get to the backside of the SMA. So a couple reasons that you got to get to the backside of the SMA. One, you want to feel, is that tumor stuck to the SMA with your fingers? So, you know, when I'm doing this, left hand is pulling the head of the pancreas up and I want, I want my fingertips to touch the SMA and feel it. And then, you know, oftentimes I'll expose the backside of the SMA, SMA right there. And then later in step six, You've already fully exposed that plane. It actually makes your life a little bit easier. So you got to at least identify the backside of the SMA as part of your coker. Okay, so your coker's done. What's step three, Lexi? So then you do your portal dissection, um, taking down the the portal nodes, making sure you get the common hepatic nodes at station eight, and then you can do your open cholecystectomy at that time as well and divide your common bile duct. Okay, good. So let's dive into this, this portal dissection a little bit. So Typically, you'll start that by taking that common hepatic artery node. Some people call it the node of importance in a Whipple. So it's pretty easy to identify. You put your finger on the common hepatic. There's this big shield-shaped nose on, n- node on top of it. You pick it up off the common hepatic artery. And now, you know, typically what I'll do is loop out the common hepatic artery. Now you have control of that vessel and you can kind of pull it cephalad. And then there's going to be a vessel coming off of it going down towards the pancreas. That's super important. What's that? You want to loop out the the GDA as well. 
Yeah. So with, with that cephalad retraction on the common hepatic artery, you put the GDA on stretch. So if you follow that common hepatic artery towards the liver, now you can have, you can find the GDA coming off. Okay. So let's say we looped out the GDA, uh, before we cut it, what are we going to do? So you want to test clamp it. Um, you want to include the GDA and make sure that you still have flow within your proper hepatic artery and that it's not dependent on flow through your SMA, B or your GDA to supply the liver. Yeah, exactly right. So there, in what scenario would the liver be dependent on flow through the SMA? If you had severe celiac axis stenosis. Perfect. So, you know, I would argue that you can tell that on a CT scan, like that you shouldn't be surprised by that in the operating room. Um, you know, you should be looking at the size of the GDA and if it's too big, if it looks bigger than a normal GDA, you should go look at the root of the celiac. And if there's a bunch of calcium in the ostea, then you should be very worried that that patient's liver flow is dependent on the SMA, which is a contraindication to a Whipple. So I try not to find that out in the operating room, uh, but you do always want to test clamp the GDA. The other reason you should do that is because sometimes anatomy is confusing and you might have looped out the proper hepatic artery and you might be wrong. So always before you ligate and cut the GDA, you do a test clamp. Okay, so then you do your cholestectomy and now you're gonna get around the, the um, common bile duct. So it, again, in my hands, you pull the artery up and away. You have two structures left. That's the bile duct and the portal vein. And then you're gonna gently push the portal vein away from the bile duct never pointing the, never using the tips of the right angle in that, uh, you know, on that portal vein, you kind of, I use a sucker and use the back end of the, the right angle, but just be gentle on that portal vein. And then you get around your common duct. One more thing that you have to check for before you cut this common duct. So you've looped out your common duct. Where are you going to put your finger before you cut? Like, So you want to put it to the right and behind the common bile duct to make sure there's not a replaced right hepatic artery. Yeah. So again, something that you should be looking for on the pre-op CT scan, but just in case, always put my finger on there on the right posterior side of the duct, because that's where an accessory replaced right hepatic uh, runs. And you never want to blow through one of those with your bovie. It makes for a very bad day. Okay. So now you've cut the common bile duct, you have officially committed. So, you know, at this point, you've sort of checked all the things you need to check to make sure that it's resectable. Usually I'll have started that retropancreatic tunnel from above and below. Um, so once you, I didn't mention this, but once you take the GDA, some people call the GDA the window to the portal vein. So you ligate that GDA. Now you can pick the common hepatic artery up out of the way. And right there is going to be the portal vein. So you can bluntly, gently dissect right down on the portal vein. And now you have the top and the bottom of your retropancreatic window dissected out. And you can make your window right then and there if you want. So now you've decided, yes, this is resectable. I'm going. Now you cut the common bile duct. That's the first step that you sort of can't come back from. So now things, the pace picks up a little bit at this point, I would say, for the next two steps. So step four, Connor. So at this point, we're going to uh, transect the stomach or the first portion of the duodenum, depending on how we're doing our Whipple. Okay, yeah, exactly. So you're going to cut either, like you said, do an antrectomy, or if you're doing a pylorus preserving, you would cut the duodenum just past the pylorus. We're not going to go into that today for sure. All right, step five, Lexi. So then you uh, go down the ligament of trites, march down your jejunum, and divide your jejunum um, at a point that's lax enough to make a tension-free anastomosis. 
Yeah, exactly right. So, you know, where to cut the jejunum is, you know, there's no exact number or anything. It's just the first loop that'll reach up there. You want to save as much bowel as you can, because obviously it's difficult to maintain weight after a whipple. You don't want to take any more small bowel than you have to, but that first loop that'll reach up, cut the bowel, and then march back on the mesentery as close as you can to the jejunum, because there are short little jejunal veins off the SMB, and you don't want to get into those. That's a bad day as well. And then you mobilize the, uh, the ligament atrites and then pass the specimen back behind the mesentery. And now all the specimen is over on the patient's right and you're ready for step six. So Connor, what's step six? So step six, you're uh, dividing the pancreas and mobilizing the specimen off of the mesenteric vasculature. The most important step in my mind uh, and also often the hardest step of this operation. So uh, like you said, you cut the pancreas, pull the pancreas to the patient's right. Uh, you can do artery first or vein first. I'm not going to go into that today, but, um, you know, get it off the vein and then get it off the artery. And the ideal dissection plane on the SMA is clearing the, clearing the SMA in a periadventitial plane for 180 degrees on the right side of the SMA. So the reason you do that is because that uncinate margin, like we talked about, that's where the tumor cells like to creep. They like to creep from the uncinate over to the SMA. Uh, and that's the most common site of an R1 resection. So you as a surgeon can do some things to control R1, not everything. Some of it is biology, but you want to control what you can control. And doing a periadventitial dissection on the right side of the SMA is what you can control. Okay, so now we got specimen out. We all high five. Usually go take a little break, get a snack, something to drink maybe. Uh, And so now we got to reconstruct. So what's the first step of the reconstruction? So first you want to do your pancreatic OJ genostomy. Okay, good. And, and, you know, I don't think we should try to give a board answer for how to do this just because there's lots of different ways to do it. I would say a lot of people do some variation of the bloom guard technique, uh, which is full thickness stitches through the pancreas that also grab a seromuscular bite of the small bowel on both sides. So basically a two layered anastomosis, that outer layer being those bloom guard stitches seromuscular bowel all the way through the pancreas and then at the end grabbing seromuscular on the other side of the bowel and then the inner row is a duct to mucosa um, anastomosis i do interrupted pds suture for that so uh i think that's how a lot of people do it but i'm not going to say it's the only way to do it by any means all right so we're on the home stretch we got two more steps connor take us home so next is going to be our hepaticojejunostomy the key to the key to the hepatic OJ is use an absorbable suture, but how you do it again, lots of ways to kind of skin that cat. I do an interrupted PDS. Um, you know, when the, when the duct is really dilated, some people will run it. I think that's totally reasonable on a small duct. I would recommend doing interrupted, but on a big dilated duct, you know, I think dealer's choice. And then our last reconstruction step. So the last step is going to be either gastrogenostomy or uh, duodenogenostomy. Right. Uh, I typically do a B2 reconstruction uh, with a hand-sewn GJ. And then we finally close. Now, what are we going to leave behind before we close, Lexi? So one, you want to put a vascularized pedicle on the GDA stump because that's the most feared complication um, after a Whipple uh, operation. And then also you want to make sure you leave drains um, around your anastomoses, particularly the PJ and the HJ. So yeah, I think draining the PJ is uh, very reasonable. There are people who don't. um, And so 
you know, there are predict ways to predict who's going to leak and who isn't. And some people won't leave a drain if it's low risk for a leak. In my hands, everybody gets a, a drain. Um, you know, I heard uh, actually on Behind the Knife, I heard John Cameron say that uh, that's what changed the mortality of a Whipple is they started draining people. And there is there is some randomized data that uh, specifically in a Whipple, leaving a drain decreases mortality. Um, but there are people who don't leave drains and in their hands it works out. I think that's fine. But most people would leave it. Yeah, and in, in conclusion, from a resident standpoint, just keeping in mind what the diagnostic workup is and really you're trying to determine what category these patients fall into within that ABC borderline resectable uh, framework, whether it's anatomy, biology, or their condition, and whether you need to give them chemotherapy first or take them uh, to surgery. Then we covered some of the basics of uh, what chemotherapy regimens you want to give and that multi-agent is better, and then uh, talked about the trends growing towards neoadjuvant chemotherapy with the idea that that ensures that most patients get chemotherapy in um, their overall treatment plan. And then, of course, we also covered the six steps of the Evans-Whipple, uh, which are very important for every resident to know walking into the operating room. All right. Well, this was a great discussion. I uh, appreciate everybody participating, and uh, hopefully we didn't beat Connor and Lexi up too bad. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think sort of the, the bottom line, I think, is that pancreas cancer is unfortunately a bad disease. Uh, there are some patients that we can help with an operation, but we need to be careful uh, to select the right patients uh, to take to the operating room for what is ultimately a very morbid operation. Until next time, dominate the day.